Chapter 16 of Look to the Stars. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Look to the Stars by Willard E. Hawkins. Chapter 16. They wandered down the coastline, the two together, faring better in the hunt for small game and edible growths than either had succeeded in doing alone. Whenever he found a scattering of the baked clay fragments, or even isolated lumps, Marlin made it a point to carry them down to the water's edge, where, in due course, they would add to the life of the planet. It would be splendid to locate some larger pieces. There might be something to those stories of goats and sheep trapped by the ooze. A dog would be a find. Duchesne was off hunting by himself when Marlin came upon the largest deposit of clay fragments he had yet encountered. One of the lamps was of bolder size. He studied it with mounting excitement. It might prove entirely barren, as many of the fragments did, or it might prove to contain only tiny creatures. On the other hand, it could be the chrysalis of a fairly good-sized animal. Transporting it to the water's edge was out of the question. But Marlin solved the problem by dredging a channel through the sand and rock debris, which had isolated the deposit. When the next tide rose, it poured through the channel, immersing the clay boulder, and when the tide receded, the greater part of the water remained in the pool. He did not tell Duchesne of his discovery when they returned to camp at sundown. It would be a thrill to surprise him if the find proved worthwhile. Beyond assuring himself at intervals that the clay boulder was covered with water, there was little that Marlin could do to assist nature. From morning to morning, on various pretexts, he opposed Duchesne's restless desire to move camp, while he watched the slow disintegration of the clay. Now and then, he fished small creatures out of the water. Others floated to the edge and revived of themselves. He was beginning to fear that the large blob contained no more than a sprinkling of such life, when, peering through the murky water, he saw a streak of lighter coloration along one side. That it might be a human limb, he refused even to hope. It seemed hairless, but often the small animals were bold in spats when they emerged, presenting a pathetically moth-eaten appearance. He could do nothing all day but watch. At sundown, Duchesne made caustic observations upon his failure to contribute to their larder. Marlin scarcely bothered to offer an excuse. Early next morning, he was back at the pool. By this time, the body within the partly disintegrated chrysalis was so definitely outlined that he could almost be certain of its human shape. The exposed portions were still hard and rigid to the touch. 
He restrained his impatience to break away the encrusting clay. Experience had shown that attempts to hasten the process usually resulted in injury or death to the enclosed creature. Yet, by mid-afternoon, enough of the deposit had dissolved to assure Marlin not only that the body was human, but that it was quite probably feminine. The head and upper portion were still encrusted with the clay. He could only hope that they would be free by morning. Had it not been for questions, it would arouse in the chain's mind. He would have remained all night by the pool. When he forced himself to return to camp, Duchesne regarded him sourly. Suspicion mounted as Marlin set about unaccustomed preparations. Selecting the sharpest of his stone implements, he ground it to a still keener edge. Then, painfully and methodically, he began scraping his beard. The coming of darkness made little difference, since he was walking by sense of touch when the growth had been removed from his face. After a fashion, he hacked at his tangled locks until something that might be termed a haircut had been achieved. Long before he had finished, Duchesne was snoring, but in the morning he looked at his companion with undisguised amusement. Why the beauty treatment? were civilized beings, retorted Marlin defensively, while look like savages. Restraining his impatience until he was sure Duchesne had gone his own way, he gathered some food and all the animal skins they had accumulated between them and hastened to the pool. A tide had risen and ebbed during the night, leaving the water comparatively clear. The body of the girl was floating on the surface, face and shoulders entirely freed of clay but submerged. A desperate fear clutched Marlin's vitals. He should have been there when the last of the clay dissolved, ready to drag her clear of the water. What if the delay had allowed her to drown? Dropping his armful of skins on a flattened rack, he plunged into the pool and bore her to the improvised couch. The skins with the softer fur he spread beneath, and with those remaining he covered the slender body. Not until then he looked at the one face with any impulse of curiosity. It had not especially muttered who she was, it was enough that she was a member of the human species, a girl. Now he realized that she was Norma, the moody outlaw maiden, and with the realization came a stab of dismay. Norma had been dead before the crash. The burst accident alone had saved her body from the incinerator. The life-maintaining clay had closed over her too late to preserve a vital spark already fled. No wonder she lay so inert and motionless. With leaden heart, he looked down at the still features, so-called and immobile. 
Not until then did he realize how vehemently he had counted on bringing her into his world, how he had needed any yearned for such companionship. It had not seemed to matter who the girl was, but now he realized that he wanted Norma. That life would never be complete without her. He touched the cheeks, the hands, the scarred neck, They were cold, cold as the stone in which he lay, and yet a sense of perplexity assailed him. Not one fragment of inorganic life had been preserved in the clay, as far as he had discovered. It seems to maintain all forms of life or potential life. Other substances had invariably been consumed. His clothing and everything he carried had succumbed to the disintegration. Yet his body had emerged from its clay entombment unscathed. Not only dead, but strengthened, purified, adapted to its new environment, so that he experienced no great discomfort in a climate markedly colder than Earth's. He and the Shane had discussed this, and decided that the body metabolism had been altered, making them definitely cold-blooded. If the purifying clay could do this, could it not also have drawn the poison from Norma's system, maintaining a spark of life that still persisted despite her seeming death? From the mere fact that her body was preserved, what other conclusion was it possible to draw? With renewed hope, Marlin said frantically about trying to establish respiration by artificial means. Was it imagination, or did he feel a slight surge of warmth in the limp body? As a last resort, he bent over the steel face and blew his breath into the delicate nostrils. A long-drawn, quivering shudder swept the form, stilling his excitement, He blew again and yet again, slowly working the arms back and forth, and presently, beyond doubt, she was breathing naturally. Her flesh was taking on a glow of warmth. The long-lashed eyes opened for a second. Throughout the morning, Marlin nursed his torch. From time to time, he moistened the pale lips with water and allowed a trickle to run into her mouth. When the sand reached its zenith, she made an effort as if to rise, and he helped her to a sitting posture. She looked around blankly, scarce seeming to know what he saw, and aware of Marlin only as an object that moved. She was not beautiful by Earth's standards, but those standards were far away. To Marlin, her very presence was intoxicating. He could have knelt and worshipped her. How long he had been observed in his preoccupation, he had no way of knowing. When he glanced up at an overhanging rock ledge above the pool, Duchesne was regarding him with sardonic amusement. I figured you were up to something, the man called down. So, this was the inspiration for the shave. Marlin licked his lips, stifling a wave of apprehension. She's mine, he said, 
Duchesne circled the ledge until he found a place to descend. Making his way down slowly, he strode toward the girl, would have touched her but for a warning gesture from Marlin. He turned abruptly. We may as well get this settled. His voice was harsh. His eyes had grown hard. One of us gets her, the other doesn't. She's mine, Marlin repeated doggedly. I found her, opened the channel to the tide, brought her to life. You want her, returned Duchesne, because she is a woman. I want her because she is the one. I'd come to feel that way about her back in the space arc. Filled with a blind rage, Marlin plunged toward him. Duchesne carried a spear, and he raised it in defense. But in the fury of his onslaught, Marlin brushed it aside and heard it clatter on the rack. He landed a fist squarely on the other's jaw and followed it with flailing blows on face and body. Duchesne made a quick recovery. He lowered his head and bored through the barrage to get a strangle hold on Marlin's neck. Forced to adapt similar tactics, Marlin struggled for his opponent's throat. They fell together, thrashing over the rocky slope. With an unexpected twist, Duchesne wrenched free, attempting to follow him. Marlin slipped on the wet rack and fell with a resounding splash into the pool. By the time he could scramble out, Duchesne had recovered his spear and was warily bearing down upon him, the stone point poised for a deadly thrust. Before the sure death presaged by the snarling futures, Marlin cautiously retreated. By this time, his mind had regained its alertness. For all his rage, he realized that, unarmed, he was no match for Duchesne, while the latter possessed the spear. Whirling suddenly, he made a dash for freedom. Before Duchesne could hurl his shaft, he had scrambled over the edge of the embankment and was running toward camp. Quickly, Marlin gathered all the spears belonging to their combined store. Thus fortified, he warily circled the higher ground which overlooked the pool. Duchesne was squatting before the girl, but his preoccupation was not so intent that he failed to glimpse the movement above. Instantly, he was erect, spear in hand. Poising his best shaft, Morling flung it straight toward the other's breast. Duchesne leaped aside, and the spear struck a rack behind him a glancing blow. The head shattered, while the shaft rebounded, striking the girl. Sick with dismay, Morlin saw her recoil and then bewilderedly attempt to rise. Duchesne caught her in his arms and forced her down on the bed of skins, then turned vindictively toward the man above. Defeated for the moment, Morlin withdrew. He could not risk throwing more spears while Duchesne remained near the girl. Throughout the rest of the day, he stalked the other. Duchesne was too wary to be taken off guard. He was even supplied with rations. 
the delicacies Marlin had brought from camp, with which to feed the girl when she regained consciousness. He saw Duchesne put occasional morsels into her mouth. She swallowed mechanically, but eagerly. Toward evening, Marlin was sure he heard her utter a few hesitant syllables in answer to Duchesne's low-voiced remarks. He kept up the siege through the night, hoping to slip down unobserved and creep up on the other man. But the night happened to be one in which the moons were both in evidence. Their radiance was sufficient to give the alert Duchesne warning of his approach. The one thing to his advantage was an unusually high tide. It drove Duchesne and his charge up the slope to a position beneath the overhanging ledge. Studying the situation by the first rays of the morning sun, Marlin decided on a plan of action. He gained a vantage point as nearly as possible above the two. By hurling himself over the ledge, he might be able to overcome the other in a surprise attack. Waiting until the murmur of voices below indicated that Duchesne was at least partly of God, he poised himself, spear in hand, then leaped. It was a fall of a good twelve feet. He landed on all fours on the sloping descent, the jar breaking his hold on his spear. A sharp pain stabbed up one leg. Duchesne sprang to his feet, spear upraised, but Marlin charged toward him without hesitation. The jagged point of the spear pierced his side, but he plowed on forcing the other back up the slope by sheer fury of the onslaught. Again, there were at close grips, gouging, tearing, surging back and forth across the slope, once the chain gained a stranglehold on Marlin's throat. Fingers, hard and cruel as talons, sunk deep into his windpipe. Mustering all his energy, Marlin broke the hold by forcing the other back against the rock wall and pounding his head against the jagged surface. They broke apart, Marlin gasping for breath, the chain shaking his shaggy head to clear it. Then, with the fury of desperation, Marlin stumbled back to the fray. This time, the chain met the attack by hurling his body down upon him with the force of a catapult. They hurtled down the slope together, but Marlin was beneath, and the crash of landing knocked the breath from his body. The chain scrambled for his spear, but when Marlin tried to rise, he found his muscles too weak to obey the demand of his will. He was faint from loss of the blood which gashed from his torn side and the pain stabbing up from his ankle was rising to the threshold of consciousness with unbearable intensity. With glazing eyes, he looked up to see the chain poised for the kill. The spear arm hesitated. Through a throbbing haze of waning consciousness, Marlin heard the other man's voice. I don't want to kill you, Dave. What about it? Will you go your way and leave us in peace? Then blackness blotted out the scene.
end of chapter 16.